Digify Africa and Flash Conversations. Good afternoon, hello, hi, and welcome to the Digify Africa Unplugged Conversations. This is the digital corner segment, a space where we discuss, you know, social political issues that speak to the uh, digital economy of the continent. Now, for a continent that is as culturally rich and diverse as Africa, you know, making sure that valuable cultural customs are available for future generations to enjoy via digital technologies becomes imperative. And that's what we're trying to do in this conversation today. Just trying to, you know, capture the, the also just trying to capture the, the, the essence of, you know, Heritage Month. We also just want to focus on how we can use digital technologies to preserve and celebrate our heritage. And today's topic is digitizing Africa, sustaining access and empowerment in digitizing African archives. I am joined by Dr. Atambile Masola, who is the founder of Asinabutula Collective. She's a writer, researcher, a teacher. She has a PhD from the university currently known as Rhodes, focusing on Black women's intellectual histories and life. She is a member of Bua Lit Collective, which is a group of researchers and educators advocating for the use of African languages as a social justice issue. She's also the founder of, as I've mentioned, Asana Collective, which is a group of teachers and researchers who aim to challenge the continued marginalization of women's narratives in the school curriculum, as well as hosting the Matlagempoeto annual lecture. She is a Mandela Road scholar, and she's also a creator of the podcast called Umoya on African spirituality. How are you doing, Doc? It's quite a mouthful right there. OMG, Apirin, you're going to make me look like an eager beaver. I am well, thank you. How are you? I'm all good. I'm all good. Now, again, I have to mention, and I always mention this, and I think maybe our audience is going to be like, eh, this digital thing that we're always talking about always seems to be just letting me down. So we had quite a very beautiful conversation that was recorded, and unfortunately... <laughs> Technology did what it does most, most of the time. It disappointed me. And then we just have problems and problems and problems. But hey, um, you know, we scheduled for another conversation and we are back. And we promised, we promised that again, we're going to try and be as excited as we, uh, we were the first time and try and crack new jokes. <laughs> but you know what this taught me is that Digital stuff always needs a human interface because imagine if I was a horrible person who was just like, I am Tika, I'm not coming back, you know? So mm. there I was being the human in spite of the technology. So technology always needs a human behind it to be humanized. I like that. It's my I own like time thing for the humanities always. <laughs> I like that. Um, so, you know, Doc, your name came up in my conversation with Khurada on creating and caring for feminist digital archives in Africa. Um, and I believe the conversation that we're having today will sort of be like a part two of that conversation. Um, and at home, if you did not have the opportunity to listen to that conversation, please go ahead and check out that episode. It's called Creating and Caring for Feminist Digital Archives in Africa. Brilliant, brilliant conversation I had there with Horada. Um, and now just to get into some of your work, Doc, I know that you do a lot of work around memory, archiving, and storytelling. When we're talking about digitizing African archives, what comes to mind? 
Well, so many things come to mind and, and perhaps I should give a bit of context about how I come to this conversation. Um, so right now I am based in the historical studies department um, at UCT, which has a variety of projects dealing with this very issue. So on the one hand, you have at a, at a very basic level, you have um, what is the relationship between the digital humanities and digital technologies, for example, or the humanities and the digital technology. So by and large, the conversation around the fire at UCT um, and, and what, was, uh, what had been digitally stored and what had not been stored yet is one part of the conversation. But the other conversation, which has really been illuminated by a project um, led by people like, um, it's, there's a, a theme of people, um, a, theme, a team of people, um, and uh, Carolyn, Professor Carolyn Hamilton is part of it. It's called the 500 Year Archive. And basically what that is, it's a platform where people can deposit um, images of artifacts, of texts. Um, and the idea is to really think about the a deep history. So going beyond, because I think in South Africa, we still have, we're still battling with this thing of our history begins in the 1800s. And I think it's a, a hangover from a colonial violent project. But what some historians are saying is what happens when we take a longer and deeper um, acknowledgement into that? And as a place like UCT, for example, that has many, many archives, um, some of them contested, some of them they've done a good job at, at trying to, to share them is what does it mean to make them accessible? So the 500 year archive and people can just punch that in on Google and a website should pop up. Um, also has um, podcasts uh, affiliated to it. Also has um, downloadable material that people can get access to. And the question really is, I think it boils down to access, but also future. What do we do with artifacts um, that we want to preserve for the future, but also make accessible in a variety of ways? But of course, the problem then becomes to, well, who has access and what kind of access are we talking about? So does everybody have a smartphone or a laptop that can download this material and they can go through it? Does everybody's cell phone and laptop or whatever device that they are using give them access to the podcast or whatever kind of material? Um, and so access, while it seems democratic, is not always innocent. There's always someone who's being left out for a variety of reasons. But I think it's, that's not enough to kind of say, let's not have the conversation, let's not do the work, because um, we're now in this place where there's, in fact, a bigger demand for, um, for historical, um, historical artifacts, historical knowledge in the interspace. I'll, so I'll give an example. When I found a copy of Zimbinko Makwalandini, which is um, W.B. Khubsana's book from 1903, was published by Lovedale in 1903. I found it on a university website that had scanned the entire document. So it was easy for me just to go download it, print it, and now I have the book, right? That's a historic document that I now can have access to because someone had gone through the work of digitizing it. But of course, I... I have different access to somebody who might want to do that um, is Lalini, for example, who may not have the printing facilities, who may not even have the bandwidth to be able to even download that book. So it's a complex um, and contested um, space, I think, but one that is necessary. I'm more 
inclined for us to bungle through it rather than to quibble over the how and the when and the where and all of that. Yeah, yeah, I like that answer because it captures on some of the work that Digify Africa does in terms of upskilling young people, especially from previously disadvantaged, you know, background and communities to sort of come into the conversation as well and sort of, you know, talk about their experiences, you know, with digital technologies and, and how does access, I like what you talk about, how does access, digital access looks like, um, you know, how does digital access looks like in, 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 in previously disadvantaged urban communities and who gets to 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 have access and, and and how does that play out and and also in terms of that access as well do we talk about the financial aspect because obviously then you know we have to build digital technology um, infrastructure in those spaces and and what does that look like i like that answer because it, it sort of touches on pretty much everything that one sort of thinks about when they are pondering on 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 just the progress of digital technologies on the continent now let me in her 2016 TED Talk titled Memory Matters, she sort of urges us to start thinking about creating a digital memory bank that captures our lived experiences and that through memory we start the work of truly understanding who we are and what it means to belong. And I think you sort of touched on this briefly on, on also the importance when we talk about history and, 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 and when we look at archives, we also need to then be mindful of who gets to tell the story on, or who told the narratives. Um, is it you know, pre-colonial, is it post-colonial? We sort of touched on this briefly. Would you agree with the statement that um, you know, there's, a there's a necessity for a digital memory bank that does actually capture you know, our authentic lived experiences and that also maybe through that, we might be able to, as a continent, even as a country, be able to um, you know, develop um, a collective identity. Yeah, I mean, that's already happening if you think of our relationship to Instagram, for example. Mm -hmm. I think Instagram is a personal digital memory bank. Yeah, I think yeah. what Ulebo is speaking to is what, what does that mean at an institutional level? And mm -hmm. I think this is where, um, this is where that the, the broader questions of the, the state's responsibility in relation to that project without all the kind of problems we, we face with, you know, uh, the state's kind of nationalist agenda to some of this. Yes. So for yes. example, a few years ago, and I, I kind of really saw this in play a few years ago, I was in the US and I was struck by, and I know it happens in some pockets in South Africa, but I was struck by each city in the US has a historical society, but it's not mm -hmm. just a historical society. It also has a museum attached to that. So it's now an institution, it's building its bricks and mortar. And so those people become the custodians of the history of that place. And there are exhibitions, mm -hmm. there are all kinds of things. And I think over time, particularly at the, the, the institution that we visited then, I think we were in Newark, they were already playing around with this digital archiving. So it's a question of how do we use existing institutions to be able to do that work? So for example, as I said, historical um, societies, city historical societies that have this uh, kind of allow fluidity between kind of state support because we know that the money is there, but also can be privately or you know, more democratically and communally run. Um, and so you have this hybrid institution that is, is a possibility. Um, even in places like Europe and, and Germany, um, in particular that I'm thinking of 
have that kind of model as well, where there are institutions outside of, you know, whether it's at schools or even government that are custodians of these stories. And they, I mean, it, you can think of it as like a patron model where it's individual and it's, it's, it's trusts, it's, um, it's um, sort of like philanthropic money that allows people to be able to do this. So there's this thin line between who gets to own the institution and what happens with it. But for me, I think communal or institutional memory banks, digital memory banks are something that we need to invest in, um, yeah, particularly yeah. on the continent, because we know that that, that that tells a broader story, but also it's a question of capacity. So right now we're talking about young people not having um, employment. For me, heritage and the digital are a huge under, underutilized space particularly for young people. So if you think of just the basics of content creation, that's yeah. heritage 101, you know? So you've got this content, you then package it in a particular way, then you put it out and make it available. Just over the weekend, I was attending a talk where um, Annelisa Mang was in conversation with, mm, oh my goodness, yeah. I'm going to forget his name, and the Pokeng, I think, um, who does About Time. And Annelisa Mang was talking about Lovedale Press and the work that they're doing, no Ati Hoka, and Upogeng yes, yes. um, was talking about the work that they're doing with About Time and I think the work that he's doing with the Maibuya Archive. That's a perfect example of at an institutional level. And I think both of them have started NPCs. So mm, victory yes. of the word where Annelisa Mangu is um, and Noati started this NPC. Um, and I think yes. Pogeng and them also have, um, I think it's also they've got letterhead as well. So those are institutions run by young people who are really thinking carefully about how to, how to curate historical content for the digital age. But mm. more than that is if you're thinking about the Labdale Press archive is what does digitizing mean for that kind of archive or any other archive, there's Maria Press. There are all these yeah. um, historical mm. presses that um, need to be looked after in a way that on the one hand, yes, we can still walk into the buildings but on the other hand, understand that there's a balance that we need to strike with putting some of this content online. So for me, it's something that we do, we are doing intuitionally um, or intuitively rather, um, but I think we're lacking at doing it at scale and with the right kind of capacity, which is yeah. part of the work that we're doing with Asinakutula, thinking about that as well. Yeah, yeah, I like that. I like that. I think you also just bring bringing that youth element in terms of you know content creation and sort of finding those little historical um, you know cultural nuances that do sort of pop up where you know young people are creating you know on the online space or using digital technologies to create their content and you know people like Annelisa Mangel, Tony Goom, um, Trevor Stierman. Um, I can even go mm. as far even you know in the music industry, Zoe Modica. Mm. People who have sort of really captured the the the, the that historical sort of archivish um, sort of element to their content, even though it's not at an institutional, you know, um, um, it's not at an institutional level, but it still sort of does capture the work of you know um, 
keeping that or storing that or preserving those stories. So I really do, I think that's something to actually also just think about using, you know, um, spaces like, like digital marketing um, also, or, or maybe these contemporary ideas of telling stories as a way of preserving our history and preserving our archives. I like that. Now on, on, on our social media platforms, we ran a poll on um, social media asking if technology is eroding our cultures. Um, what are your views on the idea that um, technology could possibly erode African cultures? Oh, I'm probably on the side that would say that's not a thing. We have absolutely <laughs> that's not a thing. Because for me, when I think about culture, it's always boils down to the question of do people create culture or does culture create people? And it's not so yeah. much that it's a chicken and the egg kind of situation, but it's that the two are always evolving and dancing around each other. I mean, just as an anecdote, I do know that some people really believe that a friend of mine comes from Ilali near Mtsoindani, which is a, a village near Batawith. And she says that um, they were putting electricity in the village, sort of putting up the, the poles and the wiring and whatnot. And the elders in the village are like, Ish, Geba, we want this development, but it's going to chase away our ancestors. So there's this idea that this kind of new fiber or or, or frequency is going to mess up with the ancestral frequency. So I can see how some people do that at, at, at a, say that or believe that at a variety of levels. But for me, I think what um, technology has done has opened up the conversation about yeah. what do we do with the culture. And even if you think of, um, and I'm, I mean, I don't know if I'm just stretching it too much, if, even if you think of uh, Afrofuturism, and what people are saying around that conversation. But also a friend of mine, Umila Sutando, always talks about this idea of African technologies, that even though the spiritual and cultural technologies, they, or, or, or practices rather, they are technologies. So upasa is a type of technology that has its own frequency. And then yes, of course, there's the digital um, technology, which then plays its own role. So I've been quite struck by how um, Izangoma have used the digital um, to practice, to, um, to, to, to consult with people, for example, or even just to share their work in a way that is respectful, but in a way of saying, you know, I mean, I think someone like Okogonoglinda does this quite carefully. She was kind of the very early YouTubers amongst Okogo to kind of demystify African spirituality through the use of technology. And for me, that's expanded the conversation. And that's what Millie and I were also trying to do with, um, with Umoya, for example. So I think it's a tool, digital, the digital or the technology, it's a tool. And I think it can enhance what we're doing. But also there's a level at which we can, we have to be mindful that we are, have the power over it rather than it having the power over us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and just on that quickly on Umoya, um, I want to talk about what were your intentions with creating that particular platform? Because it does in a way speak to the theme that we're talking about in this conversation. Yeah, I mean, Umoya was such an exciting project for us um, because what we were trying to do was exactly related to this previous question is, here is this set of knowledge on African spirituality here are young people who are consuming knowledge in a variety of ways. And so how do we bridge that gap? How do we take something that has been 
tarnished, that has been bastardized, that has been erased, that has been violated, like African spirituality, and take that and as a way to restore it and give it dignity is to have it um, have the conversation that people can listen to on their phones, listen to in their homes, listen to it in their own time, but also having other young people, Millie and I, as conduits to that conversation. Because at the time, I mean, things have really changed since we started our podcast. But at the time, there was still like a, a, a fear. And perhaps the, that's a long-standing fear that people have had about African spirituality. What is it? What does it mean? How does it show up? Is it demons? Is it Uktagata? Um, all of that. And so we had 10 episodes where we were really trying to speak to a variety of people who have um, brought African spirituality into the public space or public domain in a variety of ways. So someone like Utandis Mazwai, for example, if you think of her album, Ibokwe, was able to, to have that conversation. So in one level, pop culture is often ahead of yeah, ahead of yeah. us in one way or another. And for me as an academic, especially, it's always ahead of us as, as academics. And so, I mean, Umile is a cultural worker and a researcher and a filmmaker. I was an academic, well, still am an academic. I was doing my PhD at the time. And so to also kind of bring those two ways of thinking about knowledge and combining it in something like a podcast um, was to think about, it was about communication. It was about how do we tell the story? How do we undo some of the damage to the story? And yeah, I mean, I was literally talking to someone just last month or a few weeks ago who was still asking me about Umoya and saying, OMG, that completely changed my life because they didn't not necessarily, they were already on a journey of kind of asking themselves questions and perhaps the option of going to Ikobela probably felt a bit scarier, but listening to Ikobela like Umkulu Makanya or Ukogovela is more accessible to them, which then will take them back to finding the right kind of healer for them. So that was our intention, really, just to demystify African spirituality for, for, for ourselves, more especially, but the ripple effect is that we were also doing it for a public. Yeah, yeah. And I think what, what it did also was to, as you've mentioned, to provide that very intimate knowledge that we don't necessarily come across, especially as young people who spend a lot of time researching online. And I think what I like about um, what I like about the digital space is that it will be there forever. So if you're listening at home and you're wondering, you know, if you've never heard of um, this particular podcast called Umoya, please make sure you go and check it out. It's brilliant. It's it's it, it's it's just everything. It it really does provide, you know, that in depth. Um, knowledge around sp African spirituality and what it's all about. I really, really do love it. Now, before I let you go, Doc, um, one more question. Where are we in terms of the digital archiving project as a nation? Oh, that's a tough one. Um, we're not as far as we could be. So if you think like South Africa has had some really interesting projects in terms of technology in this country. Um, so even if you think of the SKA project, the Square Kilometer yes, Array project, yes, yes. that was an international scale project that was here in our back garden, in our backyard, garden, backyard Carnarvon, for example. So we understand the importance of investing in technology at that scale and technological research. I mean, even if we think of people like Professor Nyokong at Rhodes University and the kind of research that she's doing, 
We yes. know it. We do it. We are good at it. Somehow, with uh, the, the the kind of digital uh, humanities, I know. I mean, the previous examples that I spoke to, I know that there are other um, um, projects in the San and Koi Center at UCT as well that is speaking to this, which is also part of an international collaboration with, I think, colleagues in Canada and Australia. Um, and so I know that there's work being done, but I think at a at a community level, perhaps even at a school level, I think we're lagging far behind. So even if you think of public history and how we think about it in relation to, um, we know it in terms of memorials, but what does yeah. it mean in terms of digifying that in a mall? You know, what would mm -hmm. it mean if, we, if, if I were in a mall or kids were in a mall and there was a, a screen where they could, you know, like an interactive screen, you know, where they can go and click and find historical facts or anything like that, or anything related to the humanities particularly. Um, yeah. We know that those things are possible, but I don't think we've done them to the extent that we could have. And I think I, I, I largely blame the Department of Arts and Culture for that. So if you think of who and what the Department of Arts and Culture is right now, there's the, 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 the glib remark that it was the Department of Obituaries. You know, they only show up when stalwarts die. But in terms of thinking about the arts and heritage in a digital space, I think they've really been lacking in some of that. I know the National Heritage Council has probably funded some projects, but I think we could be far ahead, particularly because the foundation is there. Arts and heritage are a fundamental part of the fabric of our constitution and how we have made this country with all its problems. But we haven't... Um, we haven't kind of, as I said earlier, institutionalized it. Um, we, haven't, we haven't built on some existing projects that we have. Um, and I think that's by and large because we think that it will always be there somehow. Um, but again, I think with the fire, we, that's not always certain. Um, so I would love to see perhaps more money being put into museums and rethinking museums, because I know that there's some conversation right now about our museums are relics of the past but what would happen if we had digital museums so to take the existing institutions that we have but use them as a place place where people can gather so for example i love the amatola museum in king williamstown because it has yeah. reached to people in villages who are very close by even the Islamic museum i'm thinking about the small ones in particular for um for uh, for a reason because often those are the ones that are left out. So what would it mean to support an Amatola Museum or the East London Museum as a way or a hub, a digital hub where people can gather or community centers that do some of that work? There's the Seed Legal Foundation, Eklinsberg. There are all these Smolanyana institutions that would really benefit because before we even look at, I don't know, the bigger institutions in the bigger cities or in the urban cities, there's also the spaces in the peri-urban cities that we could really make use of. Um, so I've always had this dream project because I was a language teacher, but I always found myself teaching history is getting kids to do like a digital project of taking photographs of all the memorials in their town and small towns love memorials. Like, I don't know how many small towns I've been to and they all have a war memorial, but build a digital project around that. So take a picture of that, but then add a story to that, interview people, layer that up, and then put it up on YouTube. You know, that's a school project. 
that is possible. I don't know what the history curriculum is doing in terms of responding to some of that, but all the material and all the, 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 the kind of, we're not short of ideas, we're short of capacity and we're short of skills. And that's something that we can deal with very quickly. Um, I think thinking about the humanities, not just as a head and heart kind of discipline, but also as a skills discipline. So if I'm an archivist, what is my relationship between the archive and the digital? That is a skill that I need to develop beyond me just understanding what the, the, the archive looks like. Um, there's a, there's a, a writer and, and researcher, Utinashe. Um, Utinashe does this wonderful project called Reading Zimbabwe. Utinashe um, Mushaka Vanu, yes. He does okay. this wonderful project called Reading Zimbabwe. And he basically digitized and provided a catalog for um, literature in Zimbabwe, literature about Zimbabwe, but literature um, written by Zimbabweans in Shona and Debele. And so what that becomes then is a digital archive. So you go onto this website, Reading Zimbabwe, and you click on the, the link books, I think, and then all these covers pop up, some of them, it's not just covers, just the title, you click on that, and then it gives you a synopsis of the story. And then it asks you questions of, well, why hasn't that book been published since it was published in, since 1980, whatever, you know? Yeah, so yeah. that is a skill that he's a, he's an exhibitionist, he's an archivist, he's a writer, he's an academic, but has understood the link between his work and the digital. And that's what I think we need. And he's doing that purely on his own, um, that's him, that's a personal project. What would it mean to institutionalize something like that? Yeah, yeah, I like that. I like that. And I think it also just, just to wrap up, it also just makes us think about the different ways with which we can we can tell our different stories and also show different nuances of living and lived experiences on the continent. And I think I like the idea of having, you know, spaces where that is accessible, where you can um, read a book like um, These Bones Will Rise Again by Panache Chikumazi, which sort of delves into this brilliant history about you know the role of black women in Zimbabwe around you know the uprisings and all of those things and, and I think for me the digital space honestly has so much potential to offer such insight and such knowledge. Um, Doc, thank you so much for your time. I think this was a brilliant conversation like the last one. <laughs> um, if, if any of our listeners is interested in checking out your work, I know that you also have a book so you can plug that in as well. Um, please let us know where you can where we can catch you on the socials, digital socials and where we can find your book. Sure. So in terms of the socials, um, the Asana Kutula Collective, we have a website. And you can find us on Instagram, Asinagutula, as well as Twitter. And that's where we have our microbiographies, um, which also speaks to, to the work of digitizing um, the work of, of or the stories of Black women, um, African women. And then my personal handle on Instagram is Overthinking Teacher. And on Twitter, it's Atambile. And um, the new book that uh, has come out, doesn't feel so new anymore, it's been about a month, is a collection of Isakosa poetry. It's called Ili Fa, and my, I'm tagging, uh, it's a tag team um, with Um Tunzagazmungwana, who also published Unamwena, so that people can buy a combo. Um, but yeah, and we're both also thinking about questions of African languages in contemporary questions, and hopefully we'll have 
more conversations about audiovisual and digitizing even that work. So yeah, that's where people can find us. And if people would like to email me, they can email me at itambula at gmail.com. So much, Doc. I really appreciate you taking your time to have this conversation with me. Um, I hope you have a brilliant afternoon further and thank you again. Thank you so much. It was a really great conversation, even the second time. <laughs> thank you.